You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Ross. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? Hanging in there. Well, actually, that's all I'm doing. Um, <laughs> let me introduce us. You're Ross Dowsett, famous columnist from New York Times, um, author of a number of books, uh, most recently, I guess, The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. I'm Robert Wright. This is what, until very recently, was the podcast called The Wright Show. Now it is the Non-Zero podcast, and now it is on the YouTube channel called Non-Zero, whereas previously... It was on the YouTube channel called Blogging Heads. And this is not unrelated to this conversation I'm having with you. Because you were one of the earliest Blogging Heads. Blogging Heads TV, <laughs> you smile. I, I, I was, smile I was indeed, not, yes. As if that's not a deep honor that you should reflect on with utmost gravity. You're not making light of, of your place in narrowcast history, are you? No, no, not not in the slightest. I mean, I do, you know, looking looking back, I feel that honestly, the entire blogging heads empire is sort of owed some sort of massive, you know, royalty driven debt or something from the podcasting economy. Because I, I feel like I feel like we were we were pioneers who somehow failed to fail to fully cat. We were like the guys. You know, we we were at Sutter's Creek before they started finding the gold in the water, <laughs> something something like that. But no, it's a, it was it's a distinct honor. Are you um, suggesting the blogging has TV did not become a global, uh, global media juggernaut? As I'm, was I'm, explicitly I'm just, envisioned. I'm just, I just I just feel like there's an alternative timeline where you you know you are the the Joe Rogan um, of of uh, of our times. Not that being the Bob Wright of our times isn't probably better. You know. No, <laughs> far be it from either of us to suggest that. But um, I'm kind of, in terms of quantum physics, I'm kind of a many worlds guy. So, right. so that uh, world exists. It's yep. happening. It's, it's happening. happening. And let yep. me tell you, it's fun. I mean, I don't know. Well, I anyway. The um, so I wanted so yeah. So we started uh, Mickey Kaus and Greg Dingle and I started Blind Hands TV in November 2005. At first, it was just me and Mickey. In January of 2006, we started branching out a little. You were first on in April of 2006. So you were one of the very, very early blogging heads. And one thing I want to do, and I'm having these conversations with, with a few people who, who were early blogging heads, and, and the pattern seems to be that we reflect on kind of how things have changed since then. Um both maybe uh, in terms of uh, technology, especially as it interacts with media and in terms of politics. And perhaps we can address the question of to what extent those two things are related. But first I want to ask, do you remember the time you were on, you weren't talking to me, I don't think, but, and your exposure control, it wasn't automatic exposure control. It was like set, fixed. Do you remember this? I think so, yeah. Well, so what happened was, in these days, the other person could not see you. We were doing, this is pre-broadband or at least pre-pervasive broadband. So people are talking on the phone and then they're locally recording audio video and then those things will be uploaded. A a handheld, like a a desk. Well, I would do it in my office. Yeah, some of us had these, these, uh, you know, kind of Rube Goldberg devices that weren't handhelds, but weren't exactly uh, AirPods. Uh, but, um, but you, so the exposure, uh, it was a camcorder. This was also pre webcam. It was a camcorder and the exposure control was set and your lighting was changing. The light was sun was setting and it was starting to come through your window and your face got brighter and brighter and brighter and, and you could see it, but you were too, you didn't know, like, I guess I shouldn't say anything. I mean, what should I do? You you were too passive to kind of say to the person, wait, let me try to fix this. So by the end of the thing, it was hilarious. I mean, you looked like a creature from outer space. Yeah. It was like you were beyond luminous. I was the luminous. sun god, the sun god Helios. You were beyond luminous. Maybe we can dig that up. It is part of recording history. And I should say, by the way, that 
the URL bloggingheads.tv will remain. All the archives are there. We may even put up the new stuff there for the sake of people who have become used to commenting there, although most of the video is watched on YouTube now. But if people go there and look at April 2006, they will see a, an arguably younger looking Ross Douthat. Um, and uh, so anyway, those were the days. Uh, things have changed. If, if I said nothing else by way of a, a conversational cue beyond what I've said, just kind of differences between 2006 and now in politics and or technology, what is the first thing that would spring to mind? Well, I mean, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about sort of blogging heads specifically. Not necessarily. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I mean, if you, it's not unrelated because not this unrelated. was the I mean, golden I mean, age I, of blogging back then. Yeah, I would I would say that blogging heads was sort of an extension of a media atmosphere that was sort of much more, in a certain way, much more argumentative than the media atmosphere we've had for the for the last five years or so. In, in, um, the, in the good sense of mostly, argument. Mostly in the, I mean, some people would say in the bad, I would say in the good sense, mm. because I like to argue and argue, especially with people who disagree with me. I, th I think that what, what, what that era had, I think, was a lot of, a lot of context where people were sort of engaging at length with ideas that they really, really strongly disagreed with. Um, and th that was sort of, that was what blogging itself sort of lent itself to, like the, the, to the extent there was an economics of blogging, right? It was driven by getting your, you know, sort of attacking someone at length, quoting them at length, and then attacking them at length and getting them to attack you back and sort of create, but sort of creating this, this cycle of, of argumentation that in theory drove drove your audience. Um, and then, you know, blogging heads didn't always have people who disagreed. But I feel like usually, you know, the ones I remember were most likely to be, say, you know, me and Matt Iglesias arguing a, whatever the a sort of left versus right um, debate mm -hmm. was was back then. Um, and I and certainly I think the dynamics of social media radically changed that and created an environment where the incentives were for sort of clusters of clusters of agreement rather than sort of right you know and um, and, and, dis dis and disagreement with what is was often is often a caricature of right. the opposing oh, yeah you would still you know i mean on social media you you need the you need the bad tweet Right. Like you, you, right. you need, you need like the worst tweet of all the tweets generated by the other side. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, there was no, there's, there's, there was a premium on, you know, giving the impression that you were taking the other person's argument seriously in yeah. that, you know, call it 2001 to 2010 media environment that sort of diminished. And, and then you have, you know these these zones outside of social media now, both podcasting and to some extent Substack, um, that in certain ways recreate some of the virtues of that world, right? Like podcasting is much more respectful than social media. People are mm -hmm. interestingly, this is something my colleague Michelle Goldberg pointed out when we were podcasting together. You're much less likely to get sort of canceled off something you say on a podcast. You know, famous last words, it does happen, right? But um, then something you say on Twitter, right? Like pod podcasting, it's sort of like long form conversation um, mm -hmm. doesn't lend itself to cancellation in the same way. And then I'll Substack is obviously a literal refuge <laughs> for, the, for yeah. the canceled. But neither of them, you know, pop, pop, the most successful podcasts are not argumentative. I think they're sort of zones of mild right disagreement our yeah. podcast that we ran at the time was the argument sort of tried to tried to be argumentative but that's not sort of the normal podcasting mode and yeah well the Substack, you the you and michelle Substack goldberg to be about because you're 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 trying to drive pain 
Um, I, I was just, may, it sounds like maybe there's a time time lag. Uh, I'm not sure, but but I was just going to say uh, between you and me, I I, I, yeah. I I think, but but the um, uh, I was just going to interject that you the you and Michelle Goldberg version of of the argument was extremely good in in that way, very civil but genuine um, disagreement. Uh, the uh, I, I I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think this was a consequence of the time lag that that uh, you stopped talking. It was you were you going to continue a thought? Um, oh, I was just going to say that Substack Substack is like the blogosphere, but it is driven. The financials of it mean that you are trying to build a community of the like minded who will pay. Mm -hmm. um, and so even there, there's less premium on sort of sustained long form disagreement, I think, to some extent. I mean, it it does it does exist, but it's 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 different from it. It's not like the blogosphere where you are trying to draw traffic from your, you know, your enemies and critics, basically. That's that's not the the, the Substack model. No. And there's certainly I mean, there there are a lot of preaching to the choir podcast. I mean, when you think of the most monetarily successful, I mean, I think the New York Times platform is just kind of sui generis, a big media platform. I, I think tends you, the podcast products and so on tend to be an extension of the platform itself in spirit. The, um, but, but in terms of like independently, hugely successful podcasts, I mean, you get like Chapo Trap House, you know, real preaching to the choir uh, podcasts that don't, involve a lot of um serious argument the uh uh but it's interesting that uh i, I mean i i don't think we're idealizing the golden age of blogging the um there really was a moment there where there were ecosystems that were kind of you know trans ideological where people would routinely link to people of uh, different persuasions, you were you were part of actually. Was your first blog at the Atlantic because that was a very systematized version of this? The Atlantic, uh, you know, this was a moment where the Atlantic really made a smart move. I mean, the Atlantic is this big thing now. Before that, it was just this physical magazine facing an identity crisis as the internet hit, and what they did. Uh, which was very smart, and I guess this was James Bennett in 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 uh, you know along with David Bradley, the owner, and others. But they they went out and got some bloggers. The highest traffic blogger was Andrew Sullivan, and th they put them. There was like just five or six of you, right? There was you, Jim Fallows, Matt Iglesias, I guess Megan McArdle, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, Andrew Sullivan, yeah. a minor figure you may recall named Tanahasi Coates. Ah yes, was he there pretty much from the beginning? I yeah. think pretty. I think pretty. Yeah, close to to because he was doing. He started doing feature pieces for us, and and then yeah, I mean, as I remember it, I, I was the lowest traffic of of those people, <laughs> except for Fallows only blogged intermittently, but it was me, Iglesias, McArdle, Coates, and then Sullivan dwarfing dwarfing us mm. all. So, so Jeffrey Goldberg didn't have a vertical at that point in, cause see, it was like, it was so, it's so funny. Like each of you was a vertical. In other words, you would look at the top, as I recall, there's a bar and there's these like five or so blogs listed yeah. consecutively. You can click on any one and, and you tended to interact with one another. Uh, not only exclusively by any means, Matt interacted with Ezra Klein a lot. You probably did. Um, but, uh, Yes. But that was the model, and it really worked big time for the Atlantic. They they, uh, they probably paid Andrew a fair amount of money to bring his traffic, and that was key. Um, but but the ideological diversity was, you know, not not that bad when you look back at it. I mean, Matt would have been considered farther left than he's considered today. Right. Uh, and yeah, you had you had Megan as a libertarian at a time when libertarianism was actually about to become more ascendant. Uh -huh. um, and you had a more left-wing coded version of Iglesias, and you had Tanahasi before he became sort of, you know, before before his before his transformation into a kind of 
you know, celebrity oracle figure. Um, and he, but he was left certainly. And, um, you know, had a kind of left African-American perspective that, I mean, this was, so this, right. This was, I think, you know, a core left critique of any idealized vision of the blogosphere, right. Is that it was a bunch of, you know, white guys arguing with each other, privileged white guys arguing with each other. And mm-hmm. of course it was so, you know, the, the sort of the stance from the left would say, of course it was easy for a bunch of privileged white guys to disagree, you know, to disagree amongst themselves because the stakes for them are, you know, are low. And, you know, once you get into, once you get into sort of people who are actually vulnerable, then naturally it becomes harder to have kind of abstract, these kind of abstract arguments. That's, that's the left critique. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's, I mean, I haven't combed the archives of blogging heads, but certainly the blogosphere, the early blogosphere was very, very white and male, you know, sort of oh. new, new Republic, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind th- of. this is a problem for me now because, you know, I tapped the blogosphere in those days. I took these people who were who were just becoming well known as as print as, you know, for writing. But they weren't the kind of journalists who would show up on cable TV. So Blogging Heads was, was the place you could go if you wanted to see them and talk. And so anyway, and because I because I tapped into that, uh, now when I come have these retrospective conversations, it's like all these white guys. And, you know, uh, you know, I mean, if I, I was just looking at people who showed up on Blogging Heads right before you were like uh, Jonah Goldberg, uh, well, Megan showed up fairly early. Actually, Frank Fukuyama was on right before you, I noticed. Not, not, oh, not got, Caucasian. Got him early. Got him early. I mean, well, I was working down yeah. the chain of, you know, significance. And I'm, I hate to break this to you, Ross, but at that time. I was no, I was no Francis Fukuyama. He, he was but I, I was honored to be on the same platform as Francis yeah. Fukuyama. Weren't we all? Um, yeah, but no, I mean, Megan, Megan was a distinctive figure. You know, there's... A let's say a historic historical deficit of female right of center writers, um, but in that sort of internet scrum, she she definitely stood out. And it was also a case where, you know, something that's sort of now a cliche, right? Of like the sort of particular abuse that women take on the internet. Um, I saw that mm-hmm. probably first with Megan because she was sort of you know. And we were blogging together and sort of you could see the difference between the abuse that she took and the abuse that I took, even though we were both, you know, sort of right of center, right of center young people. And in, if anything, my, since, mm-hmm. you know, I'm religious and and, you know, sort of socially conservative, you would think I would take certain kinds of abuse. But in fact, her her sex attracted a certain kind of a certain kind of attack that. Yeah, she had some serious haters, uh, serious, serious, serious haters in ways that male libertarians did not. Um, but Coates the, was, I, I think, sort of a contrast to that, like his his blogging for The Atlantic was very much and this was part of his success, too. Right. Was that he clearly was bringing a perspective to that landscape that was not encompassed by, um, you know, white guys and white Jewish guys. right? Like, um, but, but with his presence, I think, yeah, you could say we had a, a, a pretty, a pretty distinct, small op-ed page. Yeah. And he was on blogging heads a couple of times. I mean, he, he became so in demand that he, he, he became what we call a, a tough get in the narrow casting business. Um, but, uh, he had some great conversations. The, uh, so are you... Uh, I mean, in terms of golden ages of things, if I look back further pre-internet, like late 80s, early 90s at the New Republic, initially Mike Kinsley's the editor, I would say the same thing. We had serious arguments. We seriously engaged arguments. Mike was particularly good about insisting that you confront the best version of their argument. And uh, But that was the culture of the small kind of intellectual magazines. Yep. And And... You and I both agree that uh, the situation is somewhat different. Now, look, there's a lot of good stuff and serious engagement out there, but but our consciousness seems so dominated by Twitter uh, that uh, we also see just a lot of not just 
kind of garbage, but reward garbage rewarded. Like the incentive structure, if your goal is to amass followers and hence influence, the incentive structure seems to encourage something other than uh, rigorous intellectual honesty and accurate characterization of alternative arguments and so on. I, I, don't, I don't mean it's it's not there, but 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 this is all a run up to asking you, like, if you if you if I'm right that you kind of agree with that assessment and correct me if you don't, um, are you optimistic about this just being kind of a pendulum swing and things maybe uh, somehow once we adjust to the, the sheer technological change, things getting better in that along that dimension? Um, I mean, I think I think there is some self-correction that that happens. There is some pendulum swinging. Um, I think that the atmosphere and, and you also have to deal with exogenous factors, right? Like, you know, the sort of the the world, the world gets calmer at some moments and crazier at others. And, you know, the crazier the world, the harder it is to stay sane in argument. With that being said, you know, had you had Twitter during the Iraq war, right, which is the backdrop to this golden age of blogging that we're discussing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. things would have been truly, truly crazy, right? Um, I think I think that's clear. So I, I don't think you can say, oh, you know, Trump made things crazy now. It's not the tech. Yeah, I mean, Trump Trump created a certain kind of craziness, but the environment of the Iraq war was sort of, I think, ripe for all kinds of um, all kinds of meltdowns. Um, and yeah, although, so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, so that's, that's part of it, but yeah, I think, so I think there's some correction, right? So you, you go too far with social media and then people say, oh, wait, maybe people would actually like to read, you know, longer form takes and actually they'll pay for them. And so you get the Substack economy and that didn't exist five years ago. And that's probably an improvement on, on sort of social media without, without mm -hmm. Substack. I'm a little bit pessimistic though about sort of an escape, a, a true escape from social media dynamics, um, just because I see it in my own media consumption, right? Um, you know, I, I consume the news through Twitter, uh, for better or worse. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't see evidence, people younger than me, maybe they're consuming the news through TikTok, right? But I mean, it's not, I, I don't see a sign of sort of like at the kind of mass cons mass level, but, or even, even in this sort of narrow casted frame that like people are, people are going to leave social media. And unless you sort of get, and unless you have a sort of, we'll put it, put it this way, that in the blogging days, blogging was the primary place for a little while for intellectual engagement. You know, you would, in in the late 1990s, it was, you know, long essays in the New Republic and short rebuttal pieces in National Review. That was sort of the primary mode. And then in, when I was in my early 20s, it was, you know, there was, that, that world still existed, but then the place where people met to argue with each other became the blogosphere. And now, even in the age of Substack and whatever, that place is social media. If you're looking to find the place where people are clashing, it is happening primarily in our profession on on Twitter. Um, and I, and that, you know, that creates dynamics that are hostile <laughs> to sustained serious argument. And I don't know how. I don't know exactly how that goes away. I don't. It it can improve if you have mm -hmm. other alternatives, but it doesn't you're still in 2022 as in 2020 if you're taking your ideas to and to find to to sort of find an argument it i think it's social media first and primarily still yeah i can imagine structural changes to twitter that might help but i don't think they'll be forthcoming and and i so i suspect what we're hoping for is a change in the actual culture where certain kinds of you know cheap tricks and cheap shots are are kind of stigmatized almost um, or something. And, and uh, you know, there's a, a new ethos manages to prevail. But let's, let's uh, 
let's talk about the not unrelated realm of politics and 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 then maybe get back to connections between politics and technology. Seems to me like a couple of things have happened since uh, 2005. One is that the sheer you know, intensity of partisan conflict has grown. And that you could say is, is kind of continuous with a trend going back to the late 80s or something, right? I mean, I think like right before Newt Gingrich shows up, um, not that he was some kind of autonomous variable coming out of nowhere. I mean, I think there were a lot of things in motion that were sustaining the trend. But anyway, you've got this year intensity, which leads ultimately to the word polarization becoming a common word, uh, which it wasn't in 2005 as a description of the world, I think. Uh, and then separate from that, you've got the ideological content. The other thing that's new is kind of, well, Trumpism is, is, is kind of new, at, at least as a real formidable force. And Trump the person is a new, uh, qualitatively new kind of phenomenon as a, as a personal force in the White House. Uh, I guess um, my uh, well, my first question, I guess, would be was is to what extent do you see either of those as kind of harnessed to the technological change? In other words, has the sheer intensity of, of partisan conflict is is that somewhat technologically driven? So my my suspicion is that the answer is yes, and that there is a kind of social media and iPhone inflection point in American society um, that sort of accelerates accelerates trends that both make people generally a little more unhappy than they were before, um, more likely to see their enemies as on the march and sort of in control and, um, you know, dangerous and so on. Uh, and also, also more likely to sort of pour too much of themselves into politics as opposed to other forms of I sort of engagement with the world, whether it's, you know, family, community, religion, uh, romance, these these kind of things. Um, I think social media has tended to make people or social media and smartphones have tended to make people a little more isolated from each other in the real world to live more in the virtual. And so far, the virtual realm is a realm of sort of provocations from your enemies, streams of doom laden news in your in your feeds. And I think all of that has to drive certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of polarization and enmity. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's been interesting in the Biden presidency because we've sort of, to some extent, we've decoupled our our enmity from policymaking, uh, which possibly a good thing, um, in the sense that if you look at the Obama years, right, you would say, okay, you have this polarization, you have this incredible, you know, this growing enmity. You know, in the Obama era, it's more on the right because the right is out of power and, you know, it's paranoid, it's hysterical, it's, you know, thinks Obama was born in born in Kenya, all, all of these kind of things. But it's linked to these policy flashpoints, right? It's like we're polarized and Obamacare is the point of polarization or, you know, taxes and deficits are the point of polarization or then in the second obama term immigration is the point of polarization it's like the place the place that sort of this polarization circles around in the biden era you know that that polarization is there and incredibly powerful but it's sort of decoupled from you know the 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 substantive content of political debate, right? Like the country isn't actually that polarized over the Ukraine war. You know, generally both Republicans and Democrats support what the Biden administration has been doing. Mm. Republicans oppose build back better, but you know, that's that's not the flashpoint of polarization. Well, well there are gun control and abortion and and right. Things. So yes, yes. So gun, but even we're just about to pass 
Uh, yeah, but that's a I, totally vacuous piece of legislation. I'm sorry. And we should say to people, this will air uh, probably a couple of weeks after we tape it. But but we're talking about the gun control legislation. OK, maybe not totally vacuous, but in terms of the actual wish list, wish list among progressives, you know, we're not we're not going down very much of, of it there. And, no, and, we're, we're not. But the act, the act of the act of bipartisanship on that or the infrastructure bill or some other things, mm -hmm. nothing like that was happening in Obama's second term, for instance. And that there is some kind of a shift where, you know, what, uh, I don't know if it's my former blogging heads, friend Iglesias or someone else originally called Secret Congress, where mm -hmm. Congress sort of does these deals on, you know, like spending on green energy infrastructure that gets folded into omnibus legislation <laughs> it all happens behind the scenes. And it, it just feels like more of polarization has moved to kind of ambient cultural issues, right? Where, you know, if you look yeah. at like the debates, I mean, these are still policy debates. You have, you know, Ron DeSantis does something about, um, you know, sort of talking about uh, transgender mm -hmm. issues in schools. It becomes a flashpoint, but it's, it's more about sort of, you know, who has cultural power, who's resisting, what are, you know, who's resisting who, who's the aggressor, who's on defense mm. in a way that's just a little bit decoupled from the legislative process. Whereas I feel like in the Obama era, it was more focused on, yeah. on the legislative process. Um, well, I, cer I certainly think a much greater degree of outrage, first of all, there's probably more total outrage, but just a, a greater percentage of politically related outrage is over things that are not very substantive on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I I think that is 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 probably close to undeniable. Um, the well, uh, or I I would defend. I mean, I don't. For instance, the questions of like the questions around transgenderism, right? I I think those are very substantive questions. You have a landscape where you know you have a a very contested and controversial approach to effectively medical treatment of gender dysphoria that was not at all, you know, that, that sort of became, became um, widely accepted in a very short period of time. And it's linked to a really big transformation in sort of the sexual self-identification of American youth, where, you know, mm -hmm. you have a quarter of young Americans, for whatever reason, whatever it means, identifying as LGBTQ. These are big, you know, the, I, I think these are, these are not fake issues. They're real issues. Oh, yeah. But they are issues that are about culture and the institutions that shape culture in ways that are, again, just very distinct, like they touch on legislation, the Biden administration can put out its mm. guidelines on conversion therapy, okay. But, but they are, they are much more about i mean they're they're yeah. culture wars in the truer sense of the term I guess yeah and 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 just uh quickly the point i was making wasn't that there aren't substantive issues under uh, underlying the outrage at some level it's just that the outrage is more likely to be not about oh they're they're saying that trans people shouldn't be able to participate in sports as that oh we caught them in this moment where they seem to be saying trans people aren't even human even though in context that's not what they're saying right that that's what i mean is is you pick these little things you know uh right. that that are not directly related to issues so let me so you brought up culture and of course part of your identity as a as a columnist is that you are a religious conservative and 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 culture you know, is a big uh, is a big issue with religious conservatives, right? I, I mean, there there's I, I think they are more inclined to say, for example, politics is downstream from culture than than maybe secular uh, conservatives or liberals are. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it's something it's something that's talked about a lot. I, I and I I kind of all I guess all I'm saying is it occurred to me that maybe that's one reason. Well. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, this is not leading to a question. <laughs> let me let me let me give you a question. I was I was something closer to a question, and then if you want to comment on what I just said, you can. And that is just I think a real. Um, I think the New York Times was lucky to have you when Trump hit, because you you are not a Trumpist, but 
there's something about the kind of conservative you are, maybe just about how astute you are or something that gives you, I think, insight into Trumpism that some conservatives don't have, uh, or at least they don't they don't express. Maybe they just don't want to express it. Maybe they're worried that if they uh, accurately report what's going on inside the heads of a lot of Trump supporters, people will accuse them of abetting the 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 enemy or, you know, or something. Uh, you know, the, the way these these kinds of profiles in The New York Times of the Trump supporter in the diner draw a lot of wrath from people who say, oh, you're you're justifying evil or something. Um, do you has, has it occurred? Has this occurred to you? Is this I doubt it's news to you that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I, I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to be particularly acute. I I would say, though, that I. Yeah, I, I occupy a slightly different position in my relationship to conservatism and the Republican Party um, than do a lot of people who end up as conservative representatives of conservatism in mainstream media. Um, the the typical person, whether they're on CNN or writing on the Washington Post op-ed page or somewhere else, who's sort of a conservative, certainly in the days of 15 years ago, you know, they were likely to be an economic and foreign policy conservative first and a social conservative sort of secondarily. Um, and they were so therefore they they had, you know, a set of commitments to conservatism that for some of them, at least like a figure like Max Boot, right, who was, you know, sort of in a way famously conservative. <laughs> Right in 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 the Bush era, given the definitions of conservatism then, but once Trump comes along and sort of cuts away the parts of conservatism that Max Boot liked, right, like you know, starting a lot of wars, basically. Um, or uh, let me let me rephrase that: a kind of a kind no, of. No, I like um, I like that. I, I know you. I know you like that, but we don't pander <laughs> here. A kind of um, right wing Wilsonian view of America as a liberal empire, let's say, right? That was associated with, to some extent, with Reagan, but he was more of a dove than people people realized. But certainly with George W. Bush, was sort of neoconservatism in its high tide. So Trump Trump undercuts all of that, shows that lots of conservatives never cared, you know, never primarily cared about that stuff. And then it's easy for Max Boot to essentially move to the center left. Right, because those were his commitments. You can have those commitments and be on the center left. There are plenty of center left hawks, even if they're not as hawkish as Max Boot. Um, they like the UN more than he does, but you know, there's there's a place there's a place there's a place for him, right? Um, and that that wasn't true for me. If you're you know if you're pro life, you know if you're a religious conservative, you know you I, you can vote for Democrats, but you're never going to see yourself as being at home in even even on the center, even on the centrist part of mm -hmm. contemporary liberalism. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're alienated from conservatism, you're essentially homeless. Um, and so I think that that alone gave me a distinct perspective on the Trump era. I was not for Trump, but I couldn't sort of just I couldn't integrate into center left opinion in the way that. Right. Some never Trump people could. But then also, you know, going back to the mid 2000s, I and some other people had a, you know, this sort of populist critique of the Republican Party on economics that, you know, that Trump very clearly played into and leaned into and exploited, right? This sort of discontent among working class conservatives with a politics of, you know, free trade deals with China and capital gains tax cuts, right? Mm. And that, that was sort of my policy shtick at the time when I was on blogging heads and when I was sort of making my way eventually to the Times. And so there, too, even if I didn't like Trump himself, the fact that he was, you know, sort of speaking to exactly the kind of discontents and problems that I had spent five to ten by the time he ran, it was 10 years writing about meant that I just automatically had more sympathy for right-wing populism than mm. a lot.
lot of, again, a lot of sort of center-right opinion opinion makers. So when you put those yeah. things together, I think it, you know, it, yeah, it's it's given me a, you know, a different vantage point on the Trump era than like my colleague, Brett Stevens, right? Like Brett and I, we are both clearly, you know, clearly right of center, but we're right of center in very different ways. And, you know, Brett is more hawkish and socially liberal, and I'm more dovish and populist and socially conservative. And so we overlap in certain ways. If we write a critique of the left, it will mm -hmm. sound similar. Um, but our attitude in the Trump era, the way we've written about it, have been very different. Yeah, well, in a way, the closest thing to a clear antecedent to Trumpism, an immediate antecedent in American politics, is is Pat, Pat Buchanan, yeah. right? Um, a Catholic conservative like you, I, I wouldn't say you, know, you came off as a Buchananite before uh, Trump, but uh, I take your point that there, there are things you, you share with Buchanan by virtue of being uh, a Catholic conservative that uh, that intersect in, in the Venn diagram with Trumpism. Now, I, I, uh, I wouldn't say, among the things I wouldn't say you clearly shared with Buchanan was uh, a kind of aversion to uh, American military commitment overseas, or, or, or I, I thought of you as being a little bit hawkish. So this, this, I thought this, uh, this came to mind when you were talking about you and Max Booth. There's a couple of things going on there. One, on the one hand, you have commitments in terms of domestic politics that are different, domestic policy that are different than Max Boots, uh, but, but. Um, but also you're not you're not you're not wedded to the militarism in the way that he was. So there's just there's two ways it makes sense for him to make this migration that it didn't make sense for you to make this migration. At the same time, as I recall, you were almost kind of a default hawk. Right. I, I mean, and, and I and I sense that that's changed a little. Am I, am I wrong about that? In other words, you weren't you weren't like a committed hawk. I mean, he supported the Iraq War. Of course, who didn't? Matt supported the Iraq War. Uh, but but am I wrong about this reading of you? I, I think it's, yeah, a little bit. I, I mean, I, I think that I supported the Iraq War. I was 23 and, you know, a young conservative. Um, but I had basically decided it was a mistake very, very early on relative to sort of the the, the general view on the right. So I was I was a bigger skeptic of of the Iraq decision by, you know, 2004, 2005 than okay. a lot of my friends on the right. And since then, I basically think of myself, you know, I don't I'm a foreign policy expert, so you don't want to sound too pompous, but as a kind of realist internationalist, which means that I am not, you know, I am not opposed to the exercise of American power. I think that, uh, you know, I think it's good for the U.S. to have a strong military and to be open to use force, to using force overseas. Um, but on a case-by-case -case basis, I've been more likely to oppose foreign interventions than support them overall. Mm -hmm. um, I was vehemently against the Libya war, um, mm -hmm. that which, you know, I, I, again, I'm not like primarily a foreign policy writer, so... I, 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 some people will sometimes be surprised at this, but I wrote like five columns about what a disaster was going to be <laughs> at the time that actually held up quite well. Um, you know, and then in, in a case like Ukraine, I, I basically, my, my view was that, you know, we, once it became clear that Russia was likely to invade, that we should, you know, send you know, sort of make things difficult for Russia, but should not expect. I, I wrote a column basically called "How to Retreat from Ukraine." It was mm -hmm. not a popular, not a popular column with it hawkish, may, it may, hawkish it may writers. Get, it may get more popular as time goes by. We'll see. But well, uh, right. But this is, I, I think, where where I am distinct. Like, basically, once it became came clear to me that, not to me, but once it became clear that Ukraine was capable of resisting and would not simply fold the way the government in Kabul did, mm -hmm. then I became a sort of a sort of limited hawk, basically. Mm -hmm. So I am a I'm not where like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald is. I'm not where, you know, the sort of or some 
sort of Trumpy, sort of very Trumpy figures on the right who are like, oh, this is just the military industrial complex doing its work. I think I think the Biden administration has been correct in its support. Um, but then I'm also like way more worried about nuclear escalation than Max Boot or Ann Applebaum or or these kind of writers. And I spend a lot of my time still arguing with them. And I, I'm sort of a Ukraine hawk on a three to six month timeline, um, which with with the assumption that we're not going to defeat or dismember Russia and that regime change in Russia is an, is an unwise goal um, to set. Okay. But then, but then too, I'm, I'm also, you know, I, part of the reason I'm not a full tilt Ukraine hawk is that I do think we should be supporting and trying to defend Taiwan. Right. So that's, that again, is not, it's not, it's not sort of paleo isolationist. It's more Scowcroft, Scowcroftian realism, I think. Okay. Um, So on, on Trump, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's not an original insight to say that Trumpism is not unrelated to globalization. Uh, so uh, I don't think I'm breaking new ground there. Um, I, I do have what I think is a kind of unusual take on that, though, which is that, uh, well, I, I, I think kind of there's no going back from globalization other than, uh, I think, other than I wouldn't go so far as to say apocalypse, but uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess, I think. Let me put it this way: I think technology creates so many non-zero-sum problems among nations. You know, things they have to solve together. Climate change is one. I, I think there's a bunch that people just don't pay any attention to that are very real. Uh, lots of arms races, space, cyber, bio. Uh, and things that like AI, human genetic engineering, that if they don't work out rules of the road will become, in fact, arms races. And uh, that's just me. But but I, I want to say that I, I, I don't see a, a, a safe, you know, stable, prosperous future that doesn't involve a lot of cooperation among nations. And, and I actually think economic engagement among nations strengthens you know creates a strong platform for this kind of cooperation so i don't see some kind of return to you know uh to uh nationalist economics i guess you might say i mean i mean my my view is uh on the other hand i think that the, that the the grievances of trump supporters are not imagined i mean the, the, you know, threat, uh, you know, low wage workers abroad are among the things that lowered American wages. Not, I think they're overrated, uh, but as a force, but they're not. Uh, but they are real. Um, and 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 so on. So I have to try to imagine a world in which uh, America doesn't fall apart and yet globalization continues I don't mean headlong globalization at the economic level. I'm fine with with a pause and reflect uh, before before kind of more you know uh, lowering more trade barriers. And and I believe strongly that at the multinational level, World Trade Organization, NAFTA, whatever, should more and more uh, acquire a kind of left wing cast and and really address environmental and labor issues. But uh, I I just wanted to kind of throw that out there and ask if that sounds crazy to you and what kind of what kind of future you envision that may be an alternative to mine that successfully accommodates what you might call the legitimate energy behind trumpism you know does that make sense to you by legitimate i mean there are there are these real grievances there are real concerns they're not imagining the fact that a lot of coastal elites feel more in common with European co- elites than they do with America's heartland. There, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of these things that aren't imagined. Uh, and I think they do have to be accommodated ultimately in one way or another. Uh, but I don't see a kind of a turning back to, to, I guess I would say an idealized Pat Buchanan view of the world, which is the world he grew up in. 
and yeah. I don't know if any of this makes sense to you, but so you can just ignore it and no, I mean, I, I, yeah, there's, there's no, well, you never, you never just go back, right? Yeah. Like even the, the most reactionary, the most reactionary figure is trying to effectively build something new, right? You know, you're, you're always any, any kind of, yeah, and any kind of return is basically trying to sort of reach back into the past for something in order to construct something fundamentally new in, in the present. And this is, you know, you go to Joseph de Maistre and the reactionaries after the French Revolution, they're totally open about this. They're like, yeah, there's no going back to the Ancien Regime. We're not restoring the Ancien Regime. We are, you know, we are, we are restorationists in order to create, create something new. Um, so yeah, there's no, there's nothing sort of in a pure politics of nostalgia that's worth claiming. Um, I mean, I think there's, I, I think my current expectation is not that globalization ever goes into reverse, but that there is a certain kind of stall to the process that could be with us for a while, where, you know, you, you develop a sort of, uh, you know, it's not clear exactly what form these sort of ecosystems or blocks will take. Um, but, you know, you have sort of zones of increasing interpenetration, you know, US, US and Europe and the Pacific Rim, Russia and China, <laughs> you know, and Central Asia, right? And, and in those, but, but then there's sort of less, um, you know, it, it becomes a more complicated thing to outsource American jobs to China. And already like sort of changing conditions in China have made that made that more complicated to begin with, right? But or to, to take a sort of superficial but also important area like pop culture, right? Like China now has its own really strong domestic film industry. And we've gone from a world where China was just flooded with American movies to a world where China restricts how many American movies come in and some still come in. But China has its own sort of, you know, there's sort of Chinese cinema. It's not just sort of, it's derivative in certain ways of American pop culture, but it's not just like American pop culture as far as, far as the eye can mm -hmm. see. Um, so I think there's some of, some of that has already happened and will sort of continue to happen. The model, the, the way the Chinese demonstrated that you could have the internet without having an open internet, I think is something that, Certainly Russia, potentially India, like potentially the Middle East are going to sort of imitate. So just in terms of sort of information flows, there's going mm -hmm. to be more sort of spheres and firewalls than people anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. Um, domestically, I mean, you know, there's a reason that the smartest pro-Trump intellectuals have sort of come around to revisiting industrial policy basically um because it it seems like a way to say okay we're not just going to sort of you know we're, we're going to have new trade policies and we're going to have some tariffs and restrictions and these kinds of things but fundamentally we need sort of state-led reinvestment mm -hmm. in regions of america that have done badly under under current under current conditions um, and that's linked to a sort of foreign policy competition vision, linked to ideas of American independence and self-sufficiency. But I think to the extent there's a strong case for it, it's more sort of about these kind of issues of social cohesion and domestic domestic harmony, right? That like the big the big error of neoliberalism in its sort of second phase, if you take like Reagan and Thatcher as the first phase, and then sort of Clinton to Obama as the second phase, right? The error in the second phase was basically to say, you know, it's, we're, we're just, we're just measuring rising GDP. Mm -hmm. These free trade gives you rising GDP. Therefore, there will be enough money to redistribute to from the winners to the losers. But if all of the winners are in the Acela corridor, and, you know, Northern California, and college towns and big cities. And all of the losers are in like five to 10 big important states, right? And the, you know, and the winners are people who are already winning and the losers are people who are under social strain um, and cultural strain as it was, then it's not just a simple matter to say, oh, well, well we're gonna re just redistribute a bit. 
um, because that's, you know, part of it is people, people want, you know, they want healthy communities. They want, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. well-paying jobs. This is a problem the Democrats have run into repeatedly in sort of Rust Belt states. Democrats say, well, we're going to spend more on Medicaid than the Republicans. And that's popular. People, people do want to spend more on Medicaid. But what people fundamentally want is not Medicaid. Right? Yeah. They fundamentally want jobs and stable families. And that's a big part, especially in the opioid era of what they've lost. Now, I don't know at all if there's a policy solution to this. I, I mean, I think, you know, the U.S. has been bad at big projects for a while. Um, the stuff I wrote about in my last book about decadence, the, the sort of tendencies of, you know, rich, advanced societies to become sort of sclerotic and gridlocked and so on. That's, that's a big problem. And it's not something that you can just sort of wave a magic wand and, and get out of. Um, but that, that would be the, the goal of a kind of new nationalism, a sort of, you know, that, that kind of politics has to be a political economy that builds, builds economic and social infrastructure in, in these, in the heartland and doesn't just try and redistribute because social programs alone are not going to solve the problem that gave you Trumpism and really all of Western populism, France, all, you know, all mm. these places, the populism comes out of, you know, places sort of mid-sized cities, mid-sized industrial cities for whom the last 30 years have sucked mm. and, um, and just spending on Medicaid is not, you know, not, it's not going to get you to a solution to those people's discontents. Mm. So it may be the final question is, uh, do you think, uh, I mean, we are headed to what, into what will truly be a kind of cold war with, I mean, China, especially, it looks like, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine great relations with Russia in any event at this, at this point. Um, but, uh, a, a cold war with China and can we afford one? Can the world afford one? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very complicated because the Chinese and American economies are interconnected on a scale that our economy and Russia's were not right in in the Cold War. So that's already one one difference in the model. I mean, I, I think. My suspicion is that the Cold War is less the right model than a sort of more 19th century great power rivalry model where the landscape is quite dangerous. You have, you know, a set of flashpoints that, you know, can lead to, to war. Um, but what's going on is, you know, is, is a kind of, kind of competition that is not incompatible with, you know, trade and, and, and continued sort of diplomatic work. This is talking about China, Russia, Russia is a separate case right now because we just don't know where things will be at the end of the Ukraine war and how you can, whether that ever ends. And if it doesn't really end, if it's, you know, a 10 year stalemate, can you, how do you walk back the sanctions and so on? I, I, I'm not at all sure about that. With China, though, I can see a world where, you know, there's sort of a perpetual danger of war over Taiwan. China is sort of, you know, competing with India and there are sort of flashpoints along the Indian border. There's a lot that there's a lot of sort of danger zones. But at the same time, just as the great powers of the late 19th century competed with each other, but like it was a very much a globalizing world, you could imagine trade trade and certain forms of diplomatic engagement continuing to a degree that wasn't the case with Russia in like mm -hmm. 1958. I don't know if that's an optimistic view or not, <laughs> um, but that, that's, that's sort of my, my, my overall guess. It's also complicated too, like Russia, Cold War Russia was, you know, fundamentally motivated by an ideology that imagined global revolution. China, China is motivated by an ideology that wants a kind of, you know, a kind of global influence and civilizational power in like you know, a sort of greater China, right? Which is very dangerous 
in particular places like Taiwan. But well, Taiwan is sui generis. It's right. like the only, you know, of all the turf beyond China's borders, it's the only part that China considers part of China. And that, yes. in fact, most nations uh, half acknowledge as part of China in the sense that they don't diplomatically recognize right. it as a sovereign nation. So that's sui generis. But, but I think the right. concern but China also wants, I mean, China wants to, you know, be the East Asian hegemon. Sure. It wants, you know, it it wants to exert certain kinds of pressure on Vietnam and Indonesia and sure. and so on, right? I mean, it, like there, there is one could say it, it wants to do what America has done done as it wanted to do as a great power, what other great powers have always wanted to do. But mm -hmm. I think yeah. the fear of China goes beyond that. I mean, I think people don't just think that's that China wants what great powers have always wanted. People worry that China wants to uh, extend a specifically authoritarian model worldwide as opposed to just making sure that the world is kind of safe for China worldwide. Uh, in other words, people do attribute an ideological motive to China that I think is wrong, strictly speaking, at least. But I, yeah, I think there's no, I, I think that there is a, a vast oversimplification in this kind of democracy versus autocracy rhetoric that you get. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I actually hate the term autocracy. I think it's, I think if you want to say dictatorship, just say, you know, say dictatorship. Um, but it lumps together a lot of, you know, I mean, India, Turkey, Russia, China, all have very different forms of government, very different things going on. They're all mm -hmm. sort of trending away from Western liberalism in certain ways, but they don't represent this kind of unified ideological threat. What is true, though, is that, that there is a sort of, you know, there, there are lot these are all non-liberal models that that are sort of attractive to uh, you know governments in the developing world african governments maybe especially um that you know from the perspective of western liberals uh, are problematic and from the perspective of american power are you know potentially you know potentially ways in which our, our power weakens. All, all, that is, all that is real, I think. Like, I, I don't think Americans should be sanguine about a future where, you know, sort of India, Hindutva ideology, you know, sort of controls the internet in India, right? And I mean, just because that's not a global ideology, it's still, you know, it's still, it's still non-ideal from, from an American perspective. But at the same time, I think we also have to assume that we're going to live with some version of that, that like you're not the, the sort of maximalist, the, the basically the post-Cold War maximalism where, you know, America was going to project power everywhere and liberal democracy was just going to inexorably spread. You know, that that seems to me to be gone and you have to live in the world as it exists. Yeah, I mean, my big complaint about the autocracy versus democracy frame is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent. In other words, you drive, you go around sanctioning every country you disapprove of and so on and not inviting them to your democracy summits. You drive them together to an extent that they wouldn't be otherwise. And and, and uh, so so this is kind of my big uh, yeah, yeah. concern. No, and there's, I think the literature, the, the American strategy of sanctions generally, with a few exceptions, has been a huge failure. Yeah. And one of my yeah, my my again in in the case of Russia, right? It's like my my expectation. I, I I think that there are places where America has to use hard power. Russia invading Ukraine is a place where you know the thing to do is to give the Ukrainians weapons. That's hard power. That makes sense. We've been right to do it. But the idea that there's sort of this soft power strategy that then that then is going to bring Russia to its knees, I think, is confounded by all the evidence we have from sanctions of you know, much weaker countries than Russia, right, mm -hmm. over decades. Like, we just don't, sanctions do not generally lead to regime change. They lead to increased regime hostility to the U.S. Right. Okay, well, thank you, Ross. What else do you want to plug? Uh, so on Twitter, you're Douthit NYT, is that it? At Douthit NYT? Yes, you can, you can follow me there if you want. And what um, else are you doing? Now, you started a Substack newsletter, did you not? I did. It was mostly to do sort of 
with the book promotion. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm actually sort of, I'm not, I'm uncertain about my next project. I'm sort of, I've been sort of doing some behind the scenes work on various potential books, maybe a newsletter inside the times, but I, you'd have to, you know, yeah, you check in six months. Hopefully mm-hmm. I'll know, I'll know what my next non column writing project is. Um, but for now the plugs are just, um, my, my last book was the deep places, which was a very different from this conversation, a sort of personal memoir of chronic illness that has some relevance for the age of COVID and everything associated with it. Mm-hmm. And then the book we talked about, the or I mentioned in passing, The Decadent Society. Um, which we had a conversation came, about. We had a conversation about, and pe- yeah. And people came, can Google that on YouTube. And-, and it came out, yeah, that conversation is almost as good as buying the book itself, but it came out just before COVID hit. And so COVID scrambled a lot of the things that I was analyzing. Um, but as we enter the sort of stagflation period of the Biden presidency, I think that sort of framework in that book, unfortunately, applies fairly well. So okay. Those are my plugs. And as for my plugs, again, non-zero is a key word. I also have a newsletter called the Non-Zero Newsletter that I encourage everyone to uh, subscribe to. And you, and if you feel like rating and reviewing uh, the Non-Zero podcast, you should feel free to do that. Uh, but but Ross, thank you. It's been, I, I, you know, I really... I, I feel very uh, kind of lucky that in the early days of blogging heads, I kind of stumbled upon a lot of uh, emerging luminaries. I mean, in your case, literally, I do want to sure say emerging, emerging lunatics, but no, no, no. Luminaries I mean, nice look, there's a, there's a case to be made for a little lunacy, but no, I meant luminary. I, but although it occurred to me, as I said it, in your case, there's that literal version. I may try to dig that up yeah. that the, uh, the sun, the Sun King or whatever. The radiance um, of Ross Douthat. It's yep. a beautiful thing. And it's just so funny to watch it dawning as the uh, as the conversation progresses. So anyway, thanks, Ross. I'll let you get back to uh, to writing. You're extremely uh, influential. And I got to say, look, uh, very your column is really cerebral uh, in a way that with all due respect to other newspaper columns, including some at the New York Times. Not all newspaper columns are. No, seriously, it's 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 well written. Yeah. It's no, this rich. Is my, this it's is my key. This is my key weakness as a public intellectual. But but thank you. You mean I being an it. actual public intellectual? Uh, I'm not a public. I'm a I'm 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 a journalist. But but yeah, I well, do I do look, I, I mean, use I use too many big words. But yeah. Well, and you have the occasional long sentence too. I mean, as long as we're talking like about your, yes. <laughs> your work, yes. But I don't object semicolons, to semicolons, and dashes. I, yeah. I don't, I don't object to either. Uh, I just mean your work is truly thought-provoking in the non-cliched. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, it really is. People should read your column, uh, and that's that's. All I have to say about you. All right. I appreciate it, Bob. Okay. I really appreciate it. And and I will be back, I hope, on this on this podcast again. So Always thank welcome. you for having me. Thanks, Ross.